Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives about some of the most urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Princeton senior Tiger Gao. Uh, I'm here with my co-host Amber Rahman, uh, who is a sophomore at Princeton. She currently is pursuing a major in African American studies on the race and public policy track with a minor in technology and society. Uh, she conducts research on race and racism and technology in Professor Ruha Benjamin's Ida B. Wells Just Data Lab. So, uh, Ember, so nice to have you here. Would you like to introduce our guests for today? Of course. Okay. Tony Towns Whitley is the president of US Regulated Industries at Microsoft. She leads Microsoft's US sales for regulated industries, which include financial services and insurance healthcare and life sciences, federal and state and local government and education. Her teams drive digital transformation across national industries and focus on inclusion, equity and access in the emerging digital economy. We are very excited to hear her thoughts on the intersection of tech development and race, innovation and ethics. So thank you so much for being with us and we are very much looking forward to getting started. So let's jump right into it. Thanks Amber. Okay. Of course. Yeah, Tony, so nice to have you here today. So It's great to be here, Tiger. Thank you. Awesome. So our first question that we want to sort of like get started with is sort of asking just generally, what do you do? And like what in particular <laughs> motivates you about working within regulated industries, as which I said before, include financial services, healthcare, and government, and especially in the United States? Okay, what do I do? I love that question. That, that'll start us right there. Let's jump to the center of a day in the life. So for Microsoft, I lead um, really about half of the US sales enterprise business to large organizations, whether it be commercial or public sector. And so there's about 5,200 folks in my team that basically um, work with various types of customers, be federal agencies, state and local governments, healthcare uh, providers, uh, financial services institutions, uh, banks, you name it, uh, schools, K through 12, as well as universities on how they leverage Microsoft technology to further their own transformation towards their own mission. And uh, that's kind of the day job. I work across those industries. Uh, we also have the opportunity because we're in industries that are heavily regulated, meaning there is a public good that has to be uh, managed, has to be uh, safeguarded. We also think about pretty deeply how our technology uh, affects uh, regulations in each of those industries, how in, we ensure, for example, that our healthcare solutions are HIPAA compliant or the new uh, regulation around fire on data and privacy and how we safeguard that data through healthcare transactions and electronic medical records, for example, how in the financial services industry, when we do risk computing solutions, that we're ensuring that we have security and robust platforms so that we have, if you will, the appropriate uh, defense against cyber attack. And so in highly regulated industries, part of the reason I enjoy the job is because these are industries that are regulated for a reason. They're regulated because they affect uh, the assets, the health, the education, the things that are most dear to American citizens, to any citizens of any economy or any uh, of any geography. And so the technology that is being deployed or designed has to then be appropriate and has to be transparent, has to be compliant, has to be secure. And so it's probably the hardest sector or set of sectors to work in, in terms of designing towards a much more complex set of requirements, but it's also the most meaningful because when you get it right, you have an impact that not only affects the industry, but generally affects society at all at large. Thank you so much for sharing that. And and since you're working in in, in, in this specific industry that, that is highly regulated, that is very important and, and deals with a lot, could you talk a bit more about your background, like sort of what led you into this? and I'd love to ask sort of prior to joining Microsoft, you're the president of CGI Federal. Could you talk about your decision to leave that company, that place for Microsoft and how have your experiences at CGI Federal informed your work at Microsoft? Yeah, so I mean, I've often been known to, to talk about my time at Microsoft as a full body workout. The, it, I pull on every part of my past, my training, my experience um, to try to do my job, right? So my job, involves uh, engaging with fairly senior officials in the government 
and in private sector. There are government models for public sector service provision. There are private sector models for obviously profit and growth and market share uh, differentiation. So I started, my, I started my time at Princeton uh, in what was the Woodrow Wilson School, now the School of Public and International Affairs uh, with economics and, um, economics and public policy, really focused at that point, I was particularly focused on urban economics and microeconomic theory and how multiplier effects would happen within urban areas. Um, I then kind of left Peace Corps and went to, to, sorry, left Princeton and went to the Peace Corps for three years. And I learned a lot about uh, being in a cross-cultural environment, a lot about unconscious bias, a lot about what it was to be an African-American in Africa on the equator, teaching 700 kids uh, in a school, uh, learning how to build schools, learning how to understand what motivated me, how I sustained difficult times, and quite frankly, how I learned. And that cross-cultural environment really shaped the way I see consulting and engaging with people from very diff different backgrounds and some of the biases that we all carry with us. I went from there in my career to joining the federal government in what was then the General Accounting Office, now the Government Accountability Office. It was an amazing part of a career that allowed me to have access at a very senior level to every part of the federal government, which is how I started to build my fluency on the federal government and how it works and what was needed. That, back then I was doing management consulting, using my economics and my modeling to, to become a consultant to various federal agencies. I then moved into the private sector at was, what was then Arthur Anderson um, and learned how to do that in terms of a very formalized management consulting construct. And from there, quite frankly, management, many management consultants went into technology. As we started to understand how you transform the government or any industry, we then started to realize the power of technology. And I started to follow that path across going into hardware, if you will, hardware organizations like Unisys, systems integrators like CGI, um, and then Microsoft in software development and kind of working the entire stack as well as working beyond government into other sectors like telco or telecommunications, uh, like financial services and healthcare. And then I started to move more internationally and started to sort of globally started to work even at CGI Federal. I had the opportunity to do work as we did the acquisition of a company called Logica, which was in Europe. And so if you think about the career, it really was building up and down the tech stack from consulting all the way through hardware, software, system integration. It was building from government, federal government, state and local government out to other industries, commercial industries like healthcare and telecommunications and utilities. It was going from the US to a global and really understanding how governments work around the world. And so when I landed at CGI Federal to the last part of your question, um, I was responsible for running what was the federal entity, the federal subsidiary wholly owned of a Canadian based system integration company based in, in Montreal, Canada. And that gave me the opportunity to have, to have sort of a CEO like experience running a federal entity with my own board of directors and having to meet the US uh, federal government requirements. So why leave CGI federal and head to Microsoft just finally to answer that part of your question. Um, I had just been promoted, quite frankly, to president. I'd been there for five years. It had been an amazing run. Um, we had finished a couple of very successful acquisitions, had a great team in place. When Microsoft came a calling, it, it really got my attention on two dimensions, actually three. One, scale, the size of Microsoft, working in 191 countries around the world, the opportunity to have a global footprint totally caught my interest. Second, the, the portfolio itself, from software all the way to policy and social engineering that was going on at Microsoft, the portfolio was so complex, so broad, that it really, again, piqued my interest. And finally, and last but not least, because this probably is what sealed the deal, was the mission. The mission statement of Microsoft to empower every person and organization on the planet to achieve more had just been articulated, formulated and articulated by the CEO, Satya Nadella. He was my final interview. And trust me, it was that mission statement 
um, that really got my attention. It got, it's the same kind of mission statement that got my attention to join the Peace Corps when I left Princeton. As a military brat, I've lived mission statement by mission statement for in defending this country with my, with my family. And so that was the mission statement that got my attention to leave this Washington on the East Coast to go to that Washington on the West Coast, which is what I did. Awesome. Thank you for thank you so much for sharing all of that. I want to go back a bit more further back in time to the to the Peace Corps that you were talking about and your experience at Princeton briefly before we get into some other questions. Sure. And I'd love to know, I guess, sort of how your experience, particularly working um, in this village in Gabon, shaped your own identity as a black woman within going later into tech and also how your experiences at Princeton shaped your sense of identity um, and self-possession as you moved into different into different fields later in life. Sure. Well, gosh, Princeton, let me start with Princeton and then go to Peace Corps just following this sort of um, sequential path. Um, to be honest, uh, Princeton was, was one of the schools I applied to really on behalf of my, my parents. My dad asked me to apply to Princeton. I was just gung-ho about playing basketball in college, and I had gotten some scholarships from some really phenomenal schools, and Princeton was sort of his request at the end that said, hey, there'll never be, there may never be a women's national or women's uh, professional basketball uh, conference. Of course, he we proved him wrong, but uh, it's time for you to start to think more broadly beyond basketball, beyond your sports, to think about schools and universities. So when I got to Princeton, um, I was intrigued after a visit by much of the work that was happening there um, in terms of back then we were, it was the time where we were doing quite a bit of protest against South Africa and apartheid. And I was intrigued by the role that many of the institutions in Princeton were having to challenge their own thinking about the role of larger higher ed, if you will, in the United States and its support for, and at that point, that was one of the big rallying cries was this idea of the United States and its support for the ruling regime in South Africa. So I got pretty politically uh, aware and sensitized when I first joined Princeton. I, I joined and moved into Princeton in college. I'll never forget freshman year having a debate that I was hosting between the daughter of Malcolm X and the daughter of Martin Luther King, both sitting in Princeton, uh, at Princeton in college, having debate about different strategies in the African-American community. Uh, the very next quarter, it was uh, Angela Davis coming to town to talk to us about what it was to um, uh, to get folks engaged and to start doing um, activism on campus. So it was a pretty substantive part of my identity as an African-American coming to Princeton. There were about 400 African-Americans on campus. We were just under 10% of the entire campus. But as you know, everybody lived on campus. It was a very active, a very vocal community. I got a chance to jump in and start things like the Third World Women's Caucus and, and look at what was then... Um, engage in the third world center, which I know has gone through different iterations. I really started to find myself both, both as an African-American, but also across the diaspora of people of color. And, and there were very, very tough scenes on campus during that time that challenged the campus, challenged our norms. And I appreciated that being able to, even my thesis that I wrote was all about the hiring um, practice, excuse me, the um, uh, admissions practices for people of color. And, and really tracking and understanding how Princeton understood uh, their ability to diversify their own campus and challenging some of the assumptions. So it was, a, it was four years of challenge. It was four years of push. I also had the chance to start the first, to bring the first African language to Princeton. Uh, no African languages were taught when I was there. Key Swahili, we brought a professor from Harvard to come and teach at Princeton um, and you know, start the first African-American theater project, which was the whiz that we put on my senior year I directed. So there was a lot of firsts a lot of opportunity to, to really challenge the organization, excuse me, the university uh, on its inclusion of people of color. So from there, graduate, and everybody was going to B school or business school at that time, where they were going to med school or they're going to law school. And I literally just watched a commercial uh, on TV and it said, the toughest job you'll ever love is the Peace Corps. And in that spirit of service, I come from uh, a very strong Christian family that is focused on service. 
and a military family that's traveled around the world, you put those two together and the Peace Corps became a very natural next step for me to join the Peace Corps as a TEFL or teacher of English as a foreign language um, in Gabon. Because I spoke French, I was able to go further into what they would call au village or further to the village, further away from the larger, um, more commercialized cities. So I ended up in a small village called Nguoni, which um, didn't really speak much French. They had two local languages and French. And so I got a chance to, to um, teach um, for a few years, um, grades, what we would call six through 12. Um, lots of students with very few resources, learning really hard, a chance in the summers to build schools, and then a chance to work with women in a very special project to catch rainwater. And I learned a lot about myself when I arrived in the village, just so you know, I was so I was dressed in African garb, trying to fit in and really feeling like I was gonna have a connection back to my own roots, my own history in West Africa of our family. And when I arrived in a Toyota Land Cruiser truck, everybody was singing Wotangani, which was the local language uh, there. And I thought Wotangani meant our, our black sister has arrived home. It actually meant white person. And I was devastated when I got out of the truck. I said, what, what in the world? And, but white person was related to the fact that I rolled up in a Toyota Land Cruiser, that I was in a truck and, and what they associated in my village with a truck were missionaries and missionaries were white. And so it really wasn't about the color of my skin. It was about the economic advantage I had to come in a truck, which meant I must be white. And so I spent a little bit of time explaining who I really was. Um, but that even that experience was just mind, mind bending for me about how um, race and identity and socioeconomic shows up around the world. So all of that, can you imagine now from Princeton and its training at the School for Public and International Affairs, my identity and moments of hopefully moments of breakthrough and, and uh, enlightenment at Princeton, as well as three years on the equator, learning how to engage in a very, very different environment. All of that I still use as I consult with people, with very senior individuals across different industries. I remember um, and, and think about what it, what it is to be in a different environment, to have to learn and challenge your own assumptions, to understand that you have bias in the way that you approach something. I realized exactly how American I was when I was in Africa and how African I was as I've lived in America. Tony, there's just so much to unpack there. So, uh, but, but I think we should also talk a little bit about the intersection of uh, racial equity, technology and ethics. I, I, I think um, in your very recent talk with Professor Ruha Benjamin at Princeton you, at the Gilbert Lecture Series, you were discussing precisely this intersection. And you, you also, uh, during this interview, you were talking about how Microsoft has such a broad portfolio of services and softwares and um, the mission statement of Nadella really attracted you. So maybe we can try to piece things together a little bit. Maybe COVID-19 was a good uh, inflection point that brought a lot of the, accelerated a lot of the trends where you really had to work with house curse, uh, the sector, the uh, education, government to provide digital services. And that was the time when uh, ethical issues became very pronounced and also racial inequality. So maybe we can just have your broad perspective on, on the past year uh, first. Yeah, what a what a year! Quite frankly, eighteen months that it has been. And you know, let's start with the you know the tragedy uh, of the pandemic and how many people lost and and just what it was for technology, what it has been to be leveraged in trying to identify the cont contagion, how to triage that contagion, um, how to monitor and create new solutions, apps, and different capabilities. Uh, you know, some of our, our biggest learnings over this last year have been the, uh, the importance of platforms that we build. You know, we're a platform company. We, we don't just build tech. We build platforms that other people build tech on, our partners and, and, and people like yourselves, uh, just developers. And, and the goal here in what we build is for it to be secure and robust. How important is that when the entire country and quite frankly, the world starts to move into a remote everything environment. And all of a sudden the US Department of Defense has to work remotely with 4 million employees on one platform. And they all have to move to that platform within a month. 
That's the kind of tech transition that was occurring and has occurred. What happens when medical networks like St. Luke's network in, in Pennsylvania, when all of a sudden they go from no telehealth, you know, just a brick and mortar sort of experience where physicians and clinicians are there to meet and greet patients to 5,000 televisits a day, which is the exact trans transition that occurred for St. Luke's and many other providers across the country. What happens when parents become primary teachers, if you will, at home with digital, without really having digital fluency, possibly not having any hardware or software that's appropriate. And now they are there at home as the primary educator. And oh, by the way, trying to work uh, and keep their own jobs uh, that hopefully they are able to do in a remote fashion. At education, we saw the greatest disparity K through 12 across this country just huge gaps of not having access uh, to the internet, not having hardware and software that was appropriate for the curriculum for the students, not having the knowledge base and the fluency to know how to use the very tools that even if the students had the hardware, they weren't sure how to use them and their parents didn't know how to help them. Those were the kinds of challenges that we, we've seen face. So I could also obviously speak to the financial services industry, banks trying to loan these large, paycheck protection programs, billions of dollars being infused into the economy. But at the same time, the bank's workers are all remote as well. They've never done lending in a pandemic. It's one thing to lend a huge you know, loan portfolio. It's another thing to do that when everybody's at home trying to figure out their own continuity of operations with their own remote platforms. And so platforms mattered, secure platforms mattered, robust platforms mattered. They also, we also learned quite a bit about data and artificial intelligence because the use of it uh, was exponential over this last year. Now we could talk about the positive side of that, which was uh, chatbots and, and different forms of artificial intelligence were used to triage all of these clinicians that were trying to both provide information on the contagion and treat patients. If it hadn't been for chatbots, hadn't been for bot technology, you would have seen more clinicians with less time with patients and more time trying to monitor the contagion and keep everyone aware of, in fact, where were COVID testing sites and what were the new findings in research. So great applications of AI did, did happen and continue to happen. Huge, huge move forward in the use of data and how data was used to predict and understand. All of us got used to looking at sort of uh, almost a daily dashboard of what was happening around this country and the world. All of those were analytics fueled mostly, I would argue, by cloud-based technologies, which is what Microsoft spends amount, uh, a significant amount of time, billions of dollars of research, refining those technologies. But with every input of new technology and emerging technology, we could argue that you introduce new implications, implications on privacy of data, implications on access for all and inclusion for people in particularly marginalized communities or poor communities? Um, do we introduce any forms of bias in the algorithms that are being used? Not, not only on facial recognition, but all of the social service algorithms that are being used. And so with every move forward to address the pandemic, we also had to quite frankly look and continue to have to look at what are the implications that might be more negative towards various communities, what might further a digital divide, particularly the economic divide between communities. And so just three quick things of what Microsoft has been doing. Um, you may have heard that we launched our sort of addressing racial injustice program uh, over six months ago that was really focused on what was happening within Microsoft. What was the experience for people of color in Microsoft? How are we gonna improve that? That was obviously a conversation about representation, about inclusion, about equity, about per, uh, career progression. There was also a conversation about our balance sheet. How do we use our assets? What does our supplier system and network look like? How much more diverse could we be if we use the power of the Microsoft balance sheet? Power towards our how we, how we bring in financial assets, how we bring in goods and services. So we set targets to improve that diversification of, that, of the balance sheet. And then finally, what are we doing in our communities? What are we doing on sort of social engineering, using technology? And we focused then on what we called inclusive economic opportunities, supporting those, uh, protecting fundamental rights, and committing to sustainability, 
um, and really going particularly hard on digital skilling because we knew that was one of the big gaps. So on economic opportunity include things like what we call Airband, which is our acknowledgement that we've got individuals in this country without access, particularly in rural areas, but even beyond in, in urban areas without access to broadband. So Airband for Microsoft was a commitment, and I believe we'll have about 3 million people covered by July of next year to address this community of, of individuals without uh, internet access and to use what we call TV white space, which is a spectrum, a TV uh, uh, broadband spectrum that can be used to build connectivity to communities. And so we made that commitment. We made that commitment pre-pandemic, but we absolutely amped up that commitment, not only to rural areas, but to urban areas to, if you will, bring down the internet access challenge. Um, other things that we've been doing, we've been focusing on protecting fundamental rights with all things that happened post George Floyd, but I could say quite frankly, uh, as, as we all know, George Floyd was not the beginning uh, of a challenge of police brutality, and it was just an, a beacon for the United States and the rest of the world to see what has been going on for many, many years. And so we started to focus on uh, building partnerships uh, this year, we sort of committed to 20 new partnerships, which collaborate on how do we use data to reduce racial disparities in the justice system? Uh, how do we have a $50 million commitment, I believe it is, with 26 partnerships in 17 areas around the country to, to, to use open data, to partner with nonprofits, local communities, to drive change in policing in prosecutorial, prosecutorial reforms, and alternatives to incarceration. It isn't just about police reform, it's the entire system of policing to evidentiary uh, data, to how the court system works, to how sentencing works, to how we even address reform post prison service and prison time. And so we've been uh, working with, and quite frankly, investing in organizations that are addressing some of these issues with data and with technology. And then finally, I'll just obviously need to speak to the ongoing conversation about sustainability, which pre-pandemic, Microsoft had made commitments to be not just carbon neutral, which we've been, but carbon negative by 2030, to be water positive, to, to make the, the investment in reducing and eliminating the impact, the negative impact that Microsoft has had on the climate. And quite frankly, taking a billion dollars and putting it in, in, an, in an innovation fund to help other organizations build solutions and technologies to address sustainability and sustainable ways to go forward for our planet. And so when you think about um, what we've learned, the impact of introducing new technologies, leveraging emerging technologies like data, machine learning, artificial intelligence, cloud technologies, uh, workplace or, or modern workplace productivity platforms, business applications, all that we've introduced. We also, on the other side of that, have the accountability and responsibility to introduce systems and frameworks to monitor how those technologies are affecting humans. Are they, in fact, improving the lives? Have they introduced sensitive impacts? Have they infringed on human rights? That's the, the sort of shared and dual accountability of introducing innovation and then managing what you've introduced and acknowledging that we have to learn some of the implications of what technology is out there. Thank you for sharing all of that. And I, and I want to go specifically talking a bit more about those new implications that you're speaking on within your partnerships with the U.S. government, especially with cloud services, since you've mentioned in the past, in recent past that the pandemic has been an important catalyst for digital transformation in the government. So I guess I, I would love to know a bit more if you could talk more about what a racially just digital transformation particularly looks like while working in partnership with the US government and with law enforcement and other agencies like that? And what challenges do you anticipate are coming with this? Well, you know, when you think about, yeah, when you think about government and I've been, you know, now almost three decades working with the US federal government as well as state and local governments, it's not a monolith. You know, government is like a set of many industries the healthcare part, uh, the defense healthcare and health and human services, uh, agriculture that sits in US Department of Agriculture, 
uh, all that we do in the interior with the park service, the treasury. So government is its own ecosystem of industries. It's an industry of industries. And so, so much of what we've learned in working directly that I have the opportunity to work directly with Wall Street and some of the largest banks in the world, as well as with some capital markets institutions, all of those learnings actually can apply to government as well. And we do that fairly routinely in terms of the understanding of how technology can be deployed and designed in a different environment. The challenge for government, as well as quite frankly, the requirement of government is that it's not driven by profit, it's driven by stewardship, it's driven by the ability to successfully meet the needs of its citizenry, and it's held to a higher standard as it should. It's held to a level of transparency that commercial sector is generally not. And so, and quite frankly, the odds are, and, and the effects, the risk are much higher when we're talking about securing, um, you know, our national security across, uh, let's say our supply chain in the US. The role of government is critical. Now we say, what what is Microsoft doing? You know, one of the things that we have focused on over the really for the last, I would argue, five five years specifically, is bringing cloud capability to government, getting government agencies more comfortable in working in, with cloud technology and solutions. Why? Because it's with the cloud capability that the cognitive services, the predictive capabilities, the deep analytics what's needed to manage in, in a modern environment, the more secure platforms, all of those are related to cloud-based technologies. And it is about shifting, uh, if you will, the, the way we've seen government and we've managed government assets previously to a sort of a new world order that is much more uh, technically uh, and technology-based. That has been a shift and we've been focused on that. We've been focused on the digital transformation of how governments engage with citizens, how governments, how you can have an experience with the government that feels like the experience you're having with your bank or with your healthcare provider, the experience of being able to use mobile technologies and digital technologies to get things real time, to have access, to have decision-making on behalf of the citizen, that all of a sudden you have a wide range of services that are available to citizens. Now, the other, the other wonderful part of working in the government, I say wonderful because I love being in regulated industries, quite frankly, is that the government has a level of regulatory scrutiny that has to catch up to the innovation of technology. We have understood for the last at least five years, if not more, that technology is moving faster than the rule of law. Technology is moving faster than the role of policy making and evaluation in the government. So the first challenge for the government is to be astute and to be aware of the range of technology that exists. What are the implications of that technology? What are the risks in employing technology? How mature is that technology? This is the digital fluency. I spend an amazing amount of time with, within Microsoft, working with governments around the world, but particularly now in the US on understanding the technology that they have either purchased, adopted, or plan to deploy. What are the implications of that technology? How mature is it? Is it, is it built? Are you using it in the way it was designed? What are the implications if you are using it outside of its sort of standard warranty? What does it mean for different people groups? You mentioned racial pieces. This is where we spend time helping the government understand the maturity of facial recognition. We all know the, the, the racial, the racial uh, concerns relative to the algorithms and whether they can in fact detect, identify, uh, discern racial features, uh, African-American features, people of color in the same way they do uh, the Caucasian community. And it, it hasn't been mature enough to be able to make those distinctions. And so we spend time building tool sets, uh, as I mentioned with Professor Benjamin earlier, um, that we have tool sets to measure the implications of the solutions we're building. We're building more and more into the methodology to understand where have we introduced bias? Why do we presume that if it's technology and, a, and artificial intelligence that it doesn't have the bias of the creator or the inputs of that technology? So we're doing more and more in transparency and spending time with the government agency by agency 
and helping the fact we're doing a cohort for the last couple of years, we've done a cohort with government leaders, just teaching them AI every month, engaging with them on what is artificial intelligence? What are the solutions? How do they deploy them? What are the decisions they should make? How do they create an ethics framework to know when and how to make the decisions to deploy? And so the federal government, whether it be Department of Defense, the civilian agencies, the Intel community, it's, it is by definition an industry of industries that learns and draws from private sector, but at a much higher level of scrutiny in terms of the kinds of technology. And so a company like Microsoft or any big technology company who's working with the federal government initially is focused on how to teach and train and help government officials understand the technology they have and create the decision models and frameworks for where best to deploy and understand the implications of that technology. Tony, this part is fascinating, especially working with the government. And I would love to unpack that with you a little bit because you preface that by saying government is not a monolith. Obviously, there are multiple layers, multiple levels of government. What is it like to work with the federal government versus local government? What are some of the projects you, you work through? Because I feel like uh, the, the news headlines that we often get is like big tech companies tried to uh, get, Google tried to get a DOD contract and struggled a lot, where, where Microsoft and Amazon are competing for certain big contracts. And I heard that a, a lot of times uh, the government bureaucracy uh, the, the different way of thinking is a lot of times just really clash with, with the, the, te the technology company's way of thinking and, and the government's understanding of AI of certain technologies. So, so not as nuanced as the tech company. So maybe just to kind of illustrate what things are like at the top yeah, level, at the local sure. level, and, and what are some of the specific instances that you really had to struggle to uh, explain things to them or, or reasons through internally whether to work with the government? Yeah, I, look, I think that's it's a fair question because unfortunately what hits the headlines are big contracts because they're big dollars. And I've been involved in some of the biggest ones and some of the most controversial ones, so trust me. Uh, I realize why that all has some sizzle and people sort of get focused. But when you, when you pull back the covers, um, in reality, you know, the government, I think about how technology, even the internet, you know, started with the defense uh, research organization, DARPA, there is so much work that happens in the government that has used technology over the years. It is not this sort of um, deeply um, litigious or contentious relationship between technology and government. I think that's overblown often. I think in large contracts, these are big private companies, uh, commercial organizations that invest significantly to go after certain types of work and uh, they're going to be competitive. That's always going to happen. But I think fundamentally in the day-to-day, -day, I think about uh, you know, one of my favorites. There's two or three um, maybe examples I could give of what working the government sort of feels like. And I've worked, remember, for the government directly in the federal government. I've also worked at DC Public Schools, Washington, DC Public Schools, as a senior budget evaluation uh, leader. And I was there working at state and local government. And I will say to you that um, the key thing for government and tech is this agreement on and focus on the mission. What problem are we solving for? And the government is, speaks in the language of mission. It doesn't speak in the language of products or tech solutions or innovation. It speaks in the mission. And the innovation has to land in an improvement to the mission. Are we faster? Are we better? Are we more efficient? Uh, is the quality of the service being provided or the product being provided better for the citizen? Most government officials are focused on and it's inherent in them to care about the mission. So I think about sort of my work with the Army Future Command. This is the command in the Army that's looking at the future of, uh, if you will, not just the Army, but across the Department of Defense, the size and, and the workforce of the Army, the soldiers, quite frankly, that support and defend our country. One of the, the best kind of engagements, the sort of the dance that happens was the willingness of the Army Future Command a couple of years ago to say, hey, we wanna change the way we train soldiers and we wanna learn what's out there. We don't need to start with the procurement. We, need, we don't wanna just buy something and see. We really wanna change the way we see uh, training for these young individuals that are coming into the military. And they basically kind of did a white paper and they created a different way of getting input from lots of different sources without it being this formal procurement process that structured them into a box. 
And as part of that, they learned about our mixed reality HoloLens in Microsoft. And they learned that in mixed reality, uh, when you had the HoloLens hardware, if you will, the, the, um, the, the goggles on, you actually could both operate in the physical world and in the digital world, that the holograms, you could engage in both worlds. That's why it was called mixed reality. They started to get excited about that construct of how could they embed that into training? How could they embed sea, air, land coming together? So three sectors of training so that the, if you will, the warfighter or the soldier could engage in three different dimensions at the same time in this sort of digital or what we'll call a mixed reality environment. It, that's where that conversation started. It started with the art of the possible. It started with having technologists spend time with soldiers on how they uh, digest information. How do you make decisions in real time when you're forward deployed and you don't have, you know, you don't have a tech uh, contingency behind you. You've got to make decisions with real data in real time. You got to make them in split seconds. Decisions that obviously have the highest uh, highest risk because there are people's lives at stake. How do you do that with information? How do we provide information real time? That was the ideation. And as a function of that ideation, what then hits the newspapers a year later is that the Army Futures Command is, is spending $22 billion in technology and innovation and, and, and purchasing these hollow lenses. But what doesn't hit the, the newspaper is how we change the way training will occur for those who join not only the Army, but all of the Department of Defense. And that training is a digital infusion, it's engagement, it's real time having primers. It will absolutely secure more soldiers going forward and that is what's kind of not talked about. That's the engagement on technology. When the VA says, hey, I need to modernize the VA. I want real-time data for the Veterans Administration. During the pandemic, a perfect example. The VA immediately said, hey, we want data to be able to show veterans where beds are available in VA hospitals for those who are dealing with COVID. Real-time, available for the veteran, they just, they just uh, log in and they can see it. They can see the closest VA hospital. They can see where they go. They can see what's full and what's open. They can make good decisions. All of that had to be real-time in dashboards. They had, were already on a cloud platform and we went into gear. And these were low-code, what we call low-code, no-code work, right? This was not deep computer scientists with 25 years of experience. These were basically folks on the front lines of the VA with very simple tools creating applications for veterans. And you know, I could take you to the US uh, Department of Agriculture and all that we're doing with drones, learning about how we can change, if you will, and improve farming systems with data about best ways, where to plant, how quickly to harvest, how to quite frankly use digital uh, transformation solutions to kind of change the way farming occurs in this country. That's what working with the government is. It's every sector from the park service to veterans to, uh, as I mentioned, uh, farmers, every sort of part of the United States and the citizenry working with how to use technology to transform how services are provided. And it's, it's amazingly important work. And unfortunately, it sometimes gets left to sort of sound bites and unfortunately just sort of the commerciality of the work versus the mission impact of the work. I'm super proud of what we've done so far. It really sounds like tech companies and particularly Microsoft play a very uh, large role in not only providing tech, but in, in possibly shaping and reshaping and, and restructuring a lot of like ways that possibly government has functioned or that you know law enforcement has functioned or the military is functioning. And since that's like a very, that's a very big task that a, that a company like Microsoft is doing, I guess I'm curious to hear a bit about sort of how you approach an ethical framework and what it sort of means for Microsoft to be bringing an ethics framework to the government and providing that. And in your talk with Professor Benjamin, you mentioned that the Department of Defense has even adopted the ethics model of Microsoft. So how do you navigate sort of that that relationship of not only providing the tech but providing the ethics which which is possibly shaping how the tech is used and what it's going to how it's going to impact people and i'm curious a bit more like if you could talk more like on the 
materially? Like what does the decision-making process look like for determining what tech is mature enough for a government or a law enforcement agency to adopt? Sure. So listen, it's, it's a phenomenal uh, question. In fact, I think it may be the most important asset that we provide may be the decision-making models and the, the ethical frameworks. Um, the, the technology is built against that. But as you know, that's sort of the lasting asset, the lasting impact that we have in our relationships with our customers in the government and across the commercial sector. So look, two years ago, our, our president and general counsel, uh, chief general counsel, Brad Smith, he announced six principles that we would use Microsoft to develop and deploy facial recognition technology. And those principles would guide and have guided how Microsoft develops our technology. Fairness was one that we would sort of work to develop and deploy um, technology in a manner that strives to treat all people fairly. Now you might say, gosh, you shouldn't have to say that. That should be obvious, but it actually isn't obvious. And you have to test against that. So every, every time I mention, a, if you will, a principle, that principle has to be put in practice with a set of rules and procedures and tests and engineering processes that we go through to ensure that we arrive at that principle. So fairness was one, transparency, documenting, clearly communicating all the limitations of facial recognition technology, being transparent and open to the organizations that are looking to deploy of, of how mature that technology is, how it can be applied, and quite frankly, things to avoid or be concerned about relative to uh, its inabilities. Uh, accountability is a third, uh, encouraging our customers to deploy facial recognition technology in a, manager, in a manner that ensures their accountability, our accountability in terms of what we're developing, uh, the level of human control for the uses that may affect people in consequential ways. That's when you start talking about sensitive uses, which is the committee that I sat on in our ethics framework. Our ethics team was around sensitive use. Uh, denial of service, infringement on human rights. Those decision-making models uh, is part, is, is one of the principles on accountability. Non-discrimination, uh, you know, just prohibiting our terms of service uh, in the use of facial recognition technology to engage in any unlawful discrimination. Um, notice and consent. You know, we encourage private sector customers to provide notice and secure consent for the deployment of facial recognition technology. Again, it sounds pretty basic, You've got to actually write these down, codify these, build these into your systems and hold yourself accountable for meeting those. And finally, lawful surveillance, which is the fact that Microsoft would advocate and does advocate for safeguards for people's democratic freedoms in, in law enforcement surveillance scenarios. And we wouldn't deploy facial recognition technology in, in any scenarios where we, put, where we believe it puts individuals' freedoms at risk. So you can hear in the principles sort of what then become practice. Um, and we have a pretty involved framework that reports and, and governance set of committees, six committees that all report up to the CEO, that all look at both the engineering of what's designed and deployed, um, excuse me, what's designed and developed, uh, then what's tested, then what is deployed. Uh, then I was on sort of a case study sensitive use committee that looked at specific case studies. Do we feel comfortable in the use of this technology by this particular customer for this purpose at this time, given the maturity of the technology, given the implications of what could occur? And a fairly uh, exhaust, exhaustive decision model that we would follow, as well as a very interdisciplinary team that came together. I was the only salesperson, quite frankly. There were uh, economists and ethicists and philosophers and lawyers and engineers. So we also believe that the interdisciplinary nature of the decision-making group was part of how you get to a better decision. So we have a set of principles um, and we have a governance approach uh, that is sort of a hub and spoke model that ensures that we've looked at everything across the continuum on what we built uh, how it was built, who built it, for what purpose, the maturity of the tech, whether it should be deployed, if it's deployed, how could it be monitored? What do we know about sort of what we'll call the inductive unknowns? When you have an inductive process and there are corners and you don't know if the technology was designed for X, but it's then used for Y, you have a set of unknowns. How risky are those unknowns? How risky are they relative to making no decision? 
What are the opportunity costs? These are some of the inputs that go into the decision-making um, the decision-making model of Microsoft. And that we codified into um, sort of a framework that we presented to, as you mentioned, Department of Defense, we presented to the home office in the UK and uh, in, in the United Kingdom is using parts of this decision-making model that we presented to parts of the intelligence community here in the US government. And so the key thing is, I would argue, is that you have a framework that's robust that's comprehensive, that's interdisciplinary, that's quite frankly diverse in terms of the set of individuals that are part of your decision-making and that you get stronger and better in your learnings on how you apply it because you're gonna make mistakes. There are always going to be mistakes, there's gonna be learning, but how we apply and kind of, if you will, get smarter and smarter. So we've got six groups, um, just to mention them, there's the fairness and inclusive group uh, inclusiveness group, there's a human AI uh, uh, interaction group, there's a transparency group, a reliability and safety group, a privacy group, a security group, and a sensitive use uh, committee within the Ether security group. And so uh, we feel like we've got not only principles identified, we have teams established, dedicated support, we are learning and sharing our learnings, and we share openly with our customers what we're learning and encourage them to build the same kinds of frameworks in their own organizations. You mentioned about you know, the various committees and during your talk with Professor Benjamin, there was one fascinating example that particularly left an impression on me, which is there were certain uh, um, uh, bad intentioned people that uh, maliciously attacked the Microsoft chatbot to induce the chatbot to re use racial slurs. Uh, and, and to prove, oh, their AI is racist or whatever. And very quickly afterwards, Microsoft treated that, that as, a, as a learning moment. You gathered the community together and made certain decisions and improved upon it. So how does the decision like actually unfold? When you talked about you bring economists and philosophers and you know, salespeople, everybody coming together on the table, do people vote about things? How, how does this kind of discussion really unfold? Uh, how do you reconcile with any disagreements? Oh, uh, it's, it's, it's phenomenally interesting. It's a great question because we start with a period of, and, and each committee does it differently. The engineering teams that are looking at what, you know, how they're building, they use tools. I talked about interpret machine, interpret ML is one of our tools. They use various tools to test the design of the solutions that they're building in the platforms. And so theirs is more of a sort of statistical sampling and testing. They come together collectively to understand those test results. Then they retest based on the results. So theirs is more of a testing process. In the work that I've done on the sensitive use committee at Microsoft, we do a process relative to a, a case study is uh, introduced. We all do our homework. Uh, we opine literally uh, in, in that it's an old fashioned kind of verb for most people, but you think, you think deeply for a period of time, you actually um, take away the distractions. Uh, it'd be like in a reading room and you, you seriously start to think and look through just reams of data and analysis about the actual organization that is in question, the technology and the maturity of that technology. It's sort of a scatter plot. Now go back to my training at Microsoft excuse me, my training at Princeton, how many scatter plots I looked at trying to run a regression analysis against scatter plots was to me like the majority of the work I was doing uh, at the School of Public and International Affairs was taking just amazing amounts of data and trying to find themes and direction and decision points. So in some ways it's like being back in school where we would take the scatter plot of information and everybody would come to their, if you will, their sort of recommendation and their considerations. You would come to the meeting with recommendation and considerations about moving forward. Um, everyone could see their recommendation real time. You could see the whole groups, but then we had an amazing amount of conversation around considerations and whether we would move our recommendation based on the considerations that we heard. It does end in a sort of a five finger vote approach, which is not just a binary yes, no, but the level of risk or the level and how do we feel within a band. And if we couldn't come to, uh, to an agreement within the band of what we felt we were comfortable deploying, there were generally no binary, there weren't easy, it was never a good or bad, it was a better or worse kinds of uh, sort of continuum on decision-making. It would also, uh, if we couldn't get to agreement, it would escalate directly to um, 
Brad and to, to Sacha, our, our president and to our CEO. So we had points of escalation as well if we couldn't get there. And so oftentimes there were timing issues that would say, we don't wanna deploy this now, but we do see a window that we could deploy this in six months. Or if we don't deploy, will others deploy a technology that could end in the same outcome? Should we be at the table trying to shape it versus allowing others who might not have the same ethical principles to engage? So there were opportunity cost discussions. And so when you think about some of the most interesting, for me, of the last five to six years, some of the most interesting parts of my career have been not the publicized wins of major contracts. As cool as the innovation has been, it hasn't even been that. It's been these discussions about the implications of technology for women, for people of color, for poor people, for people disconnected from the internet, for people where English isn't their first life. Every group and individual and having these conversations about have we infringed on human rights? Are we denying access? Do we believe in the maturity of the technology? Are we hurting? these groups, are we increasing the digital divide? Is it economically going to be um, injurious to these organizations? That's probably been the most powerful part about being in tech. Uh, Tony, I know we, we we know you really have to go. So just one last- <laughs> Really have to go now, Tony. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are more important people you have to talk to. No, uh, no, no, no one role. more important than you, <laughs> No, 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 this is it. You guys are the no. future. I'm going to be working for you guys at some point here. This is my interview right now. I'm hoping I'm getting a job. I, I joke with my friends that they're all studying AI these days. And I'm just saying, you'll all like enslave us one day. I'm, I'm just trying to be a nice person to you. I mean, <laughs> they're all working at Microsoft, by the way, as well. So Good, good answer there. That's a good answer. So uh, the name of our show is Policy Punchline. So we always ask our guests at the end, uh, what is your punchline at the end? For this interview and and personally i just want to quickly add on to that people are talking about techno optimism techno pessimism are you optimistic pessimistic how do you think of the techno dystopian view of things so uh just a quick wrap up yeah no just real quickly you know i tend to look at tech as a portfolio i look at my whole probably uh, all that i do and it's all about balance i mean i think it is all about understanding that with everything that we build in innovation there is a corresponding set of accountabilities and let's and so it's not about being uh, pessimistic or optimistic. It's about being um, a digital leader. And then as a digital leader in this economy, you can't just build. You have to think about what, how, and who. And if you don't get the other two question words in there, and all you start to focus on is your innovation, at some point you are going to be possibly um, on the wrong side of the digital divide. So that's how I look at it, and I'm excited that this, if you will, the equation, the formula allows me to bring all that I learned at Princeton, all that I've done in the Peace Corps, all that I do in raising the kids, all that I've done as a military, but I bring all of it into my day job. I don't think there's a better way to work than to bring all of you. Tony, this is fascinating. Thank you so much for joining Ember and me today. We're so excited to talk to you and we have to let you go because there's just so many interesting issues that we can further unpack down the road. So <laughs> well, I'll come we'll back you, if you guys we'll will have back. me back, if you will. So it's been have. great talking to you. Amber, I love what you're studying. I am so proud of just listening to what you're studying that you can study that at Princeton. It means a lot of things happen with old people like me back a long time ago to make a university, help the university get to a place where you can study what you study. That is thank you. impressive. impressive. And thank you for pushing things forward during your time when you're at Princeton. Old people. It's good to have old people around. <laughs> did something back there. I'm not sure. Tiger, congratulations on your upcoming graduation. So yes. proud of you. Take thank you so much. Guys. Thank yes. you. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so Adderall. much. Okay. See, see you, Tony. <laughs> well, that concludes our interview with Tony Towns Whitley. Uh, Amber, how was the interview? Did you like it? Did you enjoy uh, the, the, all the fascinating points that we <laughs> brought up with, with Tony? Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Tiger. I really enjoyed uh, hearing her perspectives, especially working within such a large industry, like a regulated industry and working with the government and, and dealing with like possibly reshaping like the way that our government is structured. It was very it's very vital to hear her perspectives on ethics and especially how racial equity and racial justice should be at the forefront of that. And so we're looking forward to, to speaking with her again, possibly. Hopefully Thank we'll you. have her back on. I know we, yeah. we wrote so many questions and, and uh, still only touched on the, the tip of the iceberg. So uh, many, many important questions to, to come to continue discussion. But 
Awesome. Thanks so much for joining me today. And, and I want to thank our listeners for listening to this interview. You can listen to this on iTunes, Spotify, any of your preferred podcasting platform. You can watch the video on YouTube. You can also watch the Gilbert Lecture Series that Professor Ruha Benjamin, uh, whom uh, Amber works for, and, and, uh, and between her and Tony, uh, there's a fascinating conversation about racial equity and technology innovation. So thank you so much for listening today. Uh, we'll see you next time. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.